Mark 14, 66 to 72. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And he went out on the porch, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again, and, and began to say to those who stood by, This is one of them. But he denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by him said to Peter again, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean and your speech shows it. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. A second time the rooster crowed, and Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought, about it, he wept. May the Lord bless this passage of scripture to us as we study today. The title of the sermon is The Death of Arminianism. The Death of Arminianism. And the title, the title and the thought might well be a theological lecture. But my point here is not to do a theological lecture, uh, but to have, uh, to sermonically deal with uh, this idea called Arminianism. That's why I've, I've given you a handout here uh, whereby it's talked about a little bit, and I'll go over that in just a moment. But I just want you to know that this, that this the scripture text is not a, uh, a long deliberation on the thoughts of, of the will of man or of the ability of the will of man vis-a-vis -vis to do what God has called us to do or to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as the Bible commands us to. The, the scripture passage is not, is not per se specifically on the subject of Arminianism, but that subject is somewhat abstract and in some ways, people can read about it and think about it and miss the whole point. Because uh, Arminianism, the, the, the word, the, the idea of our, that we call Arminianism, is a, a word that describes something of the way we think about ourselves before the face of God. It's a word that, is, that describes a, a certain attitude of mind or a certain attitude of heart by which we um, consider ourselves and our relationship uh, to God. And whereas Calvinism, the word that often is used as an ant, uh, antithesis uh, to um, Arminianism, uh, whereas Calvinism develops a, a, a disposition of heart which is very humble before the Lord, which realizes the great difference between God and man, which cultivates in our hearts a humility before the Lord and a great dependence on God, 
Whereas that's what Calvinism does. Uh, Arminianism does just the opposite. It focuses on man's abilities, and as we'll see here in just a moment, part of the reason for that is that it, it thinks that that is an utter necessity. It sees that God holds us responsible for our actions before him, and so it says, well, if God holds us responsible for our actions before him, then we must be A, B, C, and D. Uh, but uh, uh, Calvinism says, no, that is not what the Bible teaches. Now, all of this arose, now, well, two things. First of all, the scripture that we're dealing with today um, gives us a graphic illustration of how weak we are as human beings, especially spiritually, how weak we are. And so I'm, going, I'm hoping that you can take that illustration and apply it to this theological question and maybe think more clearly about it. That the end result is I want you to be more dependent upon the Lord after the service. I want you to see how much you need the Lord. I want you, I want you to be less confident in your own thinking, unless it lines up directly with the Word of God. Now, um, uh, given that, from your paper, you see that this, well, from the bottom on the left side, the bottom paragraph, it talks about when this issue arose. It was in the early 1600s. Way, it was a long time ago. Uh, 1618, 1619. And uh, there was a national synod that was called because of this question. They, the, the, the party that raised these questions were called the Remonstrants. And they raised these questions to the Dutch Calvinistic Church in the early 1600s. So this is just a few years before America was settled by the pilgrims, by the early Puritans who came to America. It was a, it was a time of rich theological reflection, whether you were in Scotland or England or um, uh, the Netherlands or Switzerland, where, where, uh, Calvin, was, uh, where Calvin had been uh, preaching for uh, many years. And so this issue rose, and um, um, they met for 154 sessions during the seven months that the synod met to consider these matters. And while they while they reached a conclusion on it, in terms of what they thought was true biblical teaching and what they thought was heretical, they realized that it wasn't enough to just say this is not good thinking. They realized that God was calling them to to explain why this was wrong biblically. And they, they lined up all hundreds and hundreds of scripture verses that helped to explain this. And you can see many of these verses in this book. This, is the, this sheet came from this book. This is written by two evangelical Baptist men, uh, David Steele and Curtis Thomas. And I, I'm not sure you can get it in this form anymore because they also did a, a short study of Romans and where the, this book was incorporated into that book. And, and uh, so, I mean, it's the same book in terms of the printing, the pages, it's in there, but it's not, it may not, I can't, I didn't look it up before the sermon to see if you could actually get this all by itself, the, the, which is the, it's called the five points of Calvinism, defined, defended, and documented. And this is the book that made me a Calvinist because I just become a Christian and one of, my, one of the Christian kids at Westminster College brought this by, and they, they said, Dick, 
you need you need to consider this. Uh, this is a major theological issue that you've got to get sorted out in your mind. You might as well do it now when you're a young Christian than wait for years and years and years. And so I took his advice, and because part of it is this this chart, which lines up. This is this is part of it. It lines up the five points of Arminianism with the five points of Calvinism. Uh, I think that's the way it is. To, um, uh, and so, I, you know, I remember that I remember that I went to my and I read the, I read those two columns, and I thought to myself, you know, I see something about both columns that I kind of like, and that that reminds me of of the scriptures. So I guess I need to study. The, the, it says that these are opposites. At the time, I didn't see it. I, I didn't. So I had to study it out a little bit. So I read them more carefully. But the thing that really clenched it for me was all the scripture verses that they have after this, which uh, which argue they have every point of the five points. They just have scripture verse after scripture verse after scripture verse. And I was forced to consider what what I thought versus what God thought. And the bottom line was I, I came to the conclusion I didn't really understand what God thought, but I could see that that is what he thought. <laughs> and so I, I changed immediately, and I, I, call, I began calling myself a Calvinist, and I began that began, began a, a, a number of years of study where I tried to figure it out. You know, I tried to understand better what these men at the Synod of Dort had written. Now... <clears throat> Above this, uh, on this, on this first paragraph, it, it says the philosophical basis of Arminianism. And it's, it's done carefully that way because uh, Arminianism does not come to us primarily as a set of Bible teachings. It comes to the Arminians themselves. They raised philosophical problems or philosophical issues with the doctrines of grace that were being preached at that time. And they said because these philosophical issues are uh, contrary to reason, uh, that cannot be what the Bible is teaching. So some people accuse Calvinists of being philosophical or being um, more theological or theoretical in their thinking, but that's because that's the way the question came to us. But we were very quickly persuaded by scripture and not philosophy or scripture and not pure logic by what we uh, by to what we ought to believe <clears throat> and um, if I could just read though uh, the the points of uh, philosophy that were brought to the, the the synod at that time it's kind of like a presbytery but they they said um, number one man is never so completely corrupted by sin, that he cannot savingly believe the gospel when it is put before him. So uh, man is never that corrupted, man is never that much in trouble with his mind or his thinking that if he sees the gospel, he can, he's not free to believe it if he wants to. Number two, and that sounds, that sounds, there seems to be some legitimacy to that. Number two, uh, nor is he ever so completely controlled by God that he cannot reject it. So man is always true, uh, free to reject uh, the, the truth of the gospel, and he's never completely controlled by God. Uh, of course, that's, those are confusing concepts. What, is that, what do those mean? Number three, 
God's election, because election is a, a word that's used in the Bible, God's election of those who shall be saved is prompted by his foreseeing that they will of their own accord believe. So that his election is not based on his, his work or his ideas, but it's based on what people think and what they, how they react to the gospel. Number four, Christ's death did not ensure the salvation of anyone, nor did it secure the gift of faith to anyone. Um, but Calvinists believe that, yes, Christ's death did, Christ's death is powerful and it works. And when the Holy Spirit takes that work and applies it to our lives, um, God does what he wills with us and brings us to faith. He saves us. It's like a doctor, a master physician who finds us sick and he cures us. And when he starts to, when he, when he starts to work on us, it works. That serum, the gospel serum works for us. And number five, it rests with believers to keep themselves in a state of grace. Um, by um, um, by keeping up their faith. Those who fall away, uh, those who fail here, fall away and are lost. But Calvinism taught, no, that when God's grace works in us, it really works, and it works um, even under the uttermost. Um, um, and so um, you have, the, you have the, uh, the nod of the thing here. Now, the, so... Um, the difference between these two ways of thinking comes down to um, what is man's fallen condition really like? Well, how much is man incapacitated by his fallen condition? And what is God's part in bringing us to the gospel? As I said, this passage of scripture does not specifically search out all of these issues. It's, it's just this passage of scripture simply looks, looks at one of the most powerful men of the church at that time, namely uh, the disciple Peter, who became the Apostle Peter, and, and, and had such a great um, reputation, and such a great record of evangelism in the early days of the church, that the Roman church considers him to be uh, the, the uh, father of the church, Popa, the, 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 the father of the Christian church. So it studies this man, this man that, that had such high capacity, and the, the the power of the message or the power of the scripture is that this powerful man was a man of incredible weakness. So whatever we think of our own strength, let us study this short passage and cultivate or contemplate better where we stand. And if we do not come out of this, you know, at the end of this passage, Peter's great weakness was revealed to him in such a powerful way that this, this man of great resolve and great power was reduced to tears, crying about his own incapacity. Oh, brothers and sisters, if we could be reduced to this, how blessed would we be? For in our lack, in our dispossession, we would see the great capacity of our Lord Jesus Christ. We would see the great uh, uh, substance of Christ. That was everything that we needed. That would fill every nook and cranny of our weakness. And even as we see this terribly impotent picture of Peter painted here, we know that via the ministry of the Holy Spirit, this St. Peter became an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
once he had admitted his great weakness and seen his incapacity, then the capacity of Christ filled him up and he was able to build the kingdom of God. Might we be such as he? And, uh, and might we see in this picture of mankind that we see here, might we see the death of this alien way of thinking, this, this way that interjects logic into our spiritual condition and says, if God says this, then we must be that. No, let us hear what God says from beginning to end, from, from, uh, from A to Z. So let's look at the passage and, we, and, and see what, what, we, what we find here with Peter. <clears throat> now, um, first of all, we see the low hurdle here described. This is not the hurdle of faith. God tells us to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And that can be a complex thing. It can, uh, it can be something much, much uh, more substantial than something that is simple. Here, uh, all that, all that uh, Peter had to do was to uh, stay awake and, uh, and, uh, and admit that he, he is who he was, namely uh, a disciple of Jesus Christ. But Jesus had been arrested, and this was at his, his arraignment. And so Peter, out of interest, uh, placed himself in that context to see what would happen. <clears throat> but it was a very low barrier. It was a low hurdle that, was, uh, that is here described. And uh, then we see the, the Peter's comparative superiority to the, to the person or the context that unnerved him. So it was a servant girl. We think of Peter, who was a man's man. He was a man who was able to um, um, uh, cultivate the affection and the, the allegiance of these other men, the 12 apostles. They, they were all, in some senses, they were all men's men, but Peter became one of their leaders. Peter, James, and John became the three most prominent disciples in that, that holy group of 12. One became... Uh, a devil after a fashion, Judas. But the others were, were men who became leaders in the Christian church. And, um, and here, so here we have Peter with uh, his experience of being a man, uh, his profession, namely a fisherman, which was a hardy profession, being out upon the, the Sea of Galilee, being in storms, surviving the fears and that sort of thing. And this is all against this servant girl. But who triumphs? It's the servant girl. This little girl, this woman, in a sense, who worked for the high priest, uh, and uh, by her description, she's not even a, a real mature woman, but she's a younger woman. And uh, she sees Peter warming himself in verse 67, and she looks at him and says, you were also with Jesus of Nazareth. Now, that's not a terrible accusation, is it? It's just a... a, a uh, uh, a condition or a comment of uh, the way things were that she, she took him for being one who had been with Jesus of Nazareth. Peter could have engaged at that point and said, yes, I, I was with Jesus. And he, he could have engaged in a conversation about the wonders of Christ, what he had heard, what he had seen Christ do. It would have been a wonderful testimony. But he was so intimidated 
by the arrest of Jesus, so afraid for his own life, so afraid for his own skin, that he allows this young woman to intimidate him. And uh, despite his comparative superiority in the face of this young woman. Uh, thirdly, we see that Peter categorically denies that he, that he even knew Jesus in these three denials. First, he denies it. Um, then uh, he denies it again. And then with great vehemence, um, he denies it with many oaths and curses and these kinds of things. And so we see the, <clears throat> that despite Despite being with Jesus for these three years, despite seeing the miracles that he'd seen, despite the touching times of conversation and listening to sermons that Jesus preached, the, the parables that he taught, despite all of this mass of this, this arsenal, you might say, of good things that should have strengthened him and, and been a foundation for him, despite all of this, in the face of the most superficial accusation, merely knowing Jesus, Peter is undone. He has no strength in him. And then when he after he denies him the third time, we see the vehemence uh, that he that is brought out. Verse uh, verse uh, seventy one, when the people around him say, "Yes, aren't you uh, aren't you uh, a man of Galilee?" That sort of thing. Verse 71 says, Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. So their opposition led him to directly contradict all reality and all truth. And he, he cursed and he swore about it. The vehemence, the strength of his personality and his words overwhelmed him and they just poured out and we have to ask ourselves um, if if this is what man can do in the face of such mild accusation why do we why do we think that man is such a strong person that the whole of his salvation would rest on him and what he does with what he sees what he sees with the gospel, what he does with that which is preached. Why would we think that the whole key to salvation lies in the heart of man? Uh, God says in his word that though he does demand that faith be worked out through our senses, though he calls us to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, God asks us to look deeper into ourselves. Where is the real strength found? Is the real strength found in my brain that is able to ascertain the truths of theology, the truth of my sin, the truth of Christ, so well that I then cast myself upon Christ? After we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says, do we actually have room to boast? I have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that our matter of boasting? As if we had the critical component to the coming of faith? Or do we not recognize that we are like Peter? We are so frail, brothers and sisters. If it, if it, is, up to, if it is up to us 
in our sinful condition, we will never see Christ for who he is. We will never see the wonders of Christ because we will never see the awfulness of our own sin. We will see ourselves as, we, we will see our sin as only a marginal uh, uh, incapacity, a slight issue of intelligence or a slight issue of willpower or a slight issue of sentiment that all we need to do is just nudge ourselves a little bit, rev ourselves up a little bit. What I came to see in my own life was that I had made a profession of faith as a, a young teenager. But I, I came to see, as when Jesus opened my eyes, I came to see that I had never seen uh, the enormity <coughs> of my own sin. I had never seen the gravity of it. I had never seen the offense of it. So that I, the, the, the Savior that I thought I needed was so much less a Savior than as presented in Jesus Christ. So when I saw the enormity of my sin, when I saw the gravity of it, when I saw the critical nature of it, then I wept openly and, uh, and uh, critically and desperately. Oh, God, save me from my sin. And at that moment, he opened my eyes to see the wonders of Christ, the beauty of him, how he was perfect in every way, how he, he, he succeeded at every point where I failed. <laughs> and then I had my pearl at great price. Then I embraced him. And that is the idea that has controlled my life ever since. I saw myself as Peter, I wept because I saw that I could not even stand up to <clears throat> a mild-mannered servant girl when it came to the love of God. I would have retracted everything. I would have given everything away. I would have denied God a thousand times over, because that was the strength of my heart. I had been reared well by two parents that loved me, that were principled, I was reared well, <coughs> but I was not well myself. I needed Christ desperately. That's what Peter came to see here. He had been tutored by Christ. He had received, gone to seminary three years of, of messianic education. But he saw that it all amounted to nothing if he depended on his own power. Brothers and sisters, we must get this through our heads. Our thinking must not be inflated to think that we are more than we are. We must learn the lesson of Peter so that our faith is allowed to, 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 uh, to flower. Uh, in the age of COVID here, uh, working in the hospital, I have been with so many, so many patients that were extremely weak. They, they, they were sick. They were not. They were not allowed any normal visitors. We were only allowed in with uh, very superior masks, headgear facial shields that covered our faces from any droplets in the air and that sort of thing. Uh, 
And I remember looking into the eyes of some of the, just many of these poor people, many of them ended up dying. Many of them, it breaks your heart to, it breaks my heart to remember how many of these people slipped away in their weakness, holding a nurse's hand. They could not hold the hand of their parent or their child because they were so infected. But the nurses would uh, be apportioned out one to a patient. And they would hold their hands as they slipped away. Man's condition can be so weak, and it is so weak, spiritually considered. But God is there to be our strength. We sang of that before in the psalm, and we can sing again of it in Psalm 25. God is our great strength. Let us not be confused about this. Let us get this one thing right, and so much of the rest of our theology will be will run in the right direction. Let's close in prayer. Our Father and our God, we pray that thou wouldst be our strength. We pray that thou wouldst be our righteousness. We pray that thou wouldst be our justification. We pray that thou wouldst be our sanctification. We pray, O oh Lord, that thou wouldst be our all in all. And we pray, O oh Lord, for thy spirit to open the eyes and the ears and the hearts of everyone who hears such messages as this. For we know, O oh Lord, that if thy spirit does not teach us, we are utterly, utterly, utterly inept. There's nothing we can do. We will be lost forever under thy judgment. But if thy spirit doth pull upon our heartstrings and play its tune, then we will rejoice in the gospel lyric that we hear. Bless us, O Lord, in thy spirit, in the Son, and uh, by the Father's eternal uh, decrees. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.